Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. Welcome to a special episode of An Honorable Profession, where I talk to the two co-founders of the Welcome Party, Lauren Harper and Liam Kerr. Founded in 2019, the Welcome Party seeks to broaden the Democratic Party's tent by engaging independents and former Republicans in order to protect democracy. We talked about the Welcome Party's mission, their key takeaways from the 2022 midterms, including the important role that ticket splitters will continue to play, and the winnable seats that they feel like Dems left on the table. We also talked about that question, do moderates really exist? Spoiler alert, yes. I hope you enjoy. I'm so excited about this one. Welcome, guys. Lorem and Liam, welcome to an honorable profession. So happy to have you guys here. Thanks so much, Debbie. Grateful to be here with you. This is going to be fun. And in full disclosure, you guys are friends and I'm a big fan of what you're doing. And so I'm excited to share with our listeners a little bit about Welcome Party and Welcome Pack. And I thought I'd just start with a, a softball question of for people who aren't familiar, what is Welcome Party? What is Welcome Pack? What problem did you see needed solving and what are you doing about it? Love it, of course. So we started the Welcome Party, which is our nonprofit element in 2019, ahead of the 2020 presidential primaries. Liam was up in New Hampshire and I was down in South Carolina, where I'm from, trying to reach out to unaffiliated voters in both states to make sure that they were going to participate in the primary. Not, it's not really necessarily anyone's job to make sure that folks who don't lean far left or far right or just find themselves in the middle are voting in primaries, particularly in states that don't have registered by party, like in South Carolina, New Hampshire. So we wanted to make sure that people were getting out to vote to make sure that we could get a compelling candidate on the ballot in November, which ended up being Joe Biden for us in South Carolina and obviously across the country. We then did some get out the vote work in other states. And then we got into we launched our pack in 2021 in November, largely as a response to January 6th, but really as a way to address the problem of not having enough compelling candidates in districts that were vulnerable, call them conceding democracy districts. So they're districts where we are effectively conceding democracy to incumbent Republicans who are in the Trumpian phase of their careers. And we want to make sure that the candidates who are running in those districts are able to win because they're brand differentiated. They're not necessarily the national brand that we see all the time. And they can win over a lot of moderate voters, whether it's swing voters, whether it's party switchers for moderate Republicans, or whether it's independents. Liam, you want to add anything before I unpack some of that? That was a great overview. Thank you, Lauren. That was really super helpful. Yeah. For all your listeners know the work that pragmatic local and state leaders do to reach out and get things done. And there are certain pockets of the country where there has not been investment in the federal races, where the type of Democrat who reaches out, brings people in, brings that empathy and brings that concrete, pragmatic sense of, let's get in and solve this problem. We need to make up that market gap, the places where 
yes, we've gone from spending $2 billion on elections to $10 billion on elections, but the whole industry hasn't changed. The sector hasn't changed. And so there are places where early investment in particular can identify some of those vulnerable seats and help New Deal type leaders at the federal level you know, make that difference. This is just an aside for a second. You did make a way into state races, at least in Ohio. Is that correct? So it's mostly federal, but you do do a little bit of state work, correct? Yeah, we had 18 state house candidates in Ohio last cycle. Okay, got it. Great. There's so much we could dive into. And I think it's super exciting that you guys are out there kind of targeting these independent or as Pete likes to call right future ex-Republicans, is that what he says, in terms of bringing them into the fold. But to take a step backwards, I think in what you said, Lauren, and what I understand, you know, you guys have kind of put democracy front and center of this whole thing of like the kind of if you go back to the purpose of this is to make sure that democracy is working. Can you just talk a little bit more about that, about kind of that being an umbrella for you all? Yeah. So a lot of groups, whether they're PACs or whatever, they they have these litmus tests where you have to pass these tests to be able to be endorsed or part of the process. And we were like, you know what, if you're pro-democracy and you are running as a Democrat, then that's our litmus test. And we want to make sure that we are able to provide a, a moderate option to, again, we primarily work in conservative leaning districts. So these are like the R plus five, six, seven districts, places where Trump, what we say, underperformed. So got less than 55% of the voters. So so there are places where obviously there, there are a lot of Republicans voters, but they're not necessarily super Trumpy Republican voters, right? And so they're districts where we believe that if you can run a compelling candidate who can win the middle, you can win, right? And so we focus on protecting and preserving our democracy here in America, because obviously it's all of our jobs to do that. And we wanted to make sure that that was a highlight of our work and something that um, allowed people to really have something to hold on to when they were running. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And so I want to talk a little bit about kind of you started in 2019, as you said, so you've been through a presidential, you've been through your first midterms. I know we're past the midterms, but we're also dealing with the consequences of the midterms and not picking enough enough House seats to hold on to the House and the consequences of that of a small minority of crazy people uh, really holding hostage the House of Representatives. So my question to start with is kind of your takeaways from 2022 and what we should learn from them. One thing I know you guys have talked a lot about, which I think is fascinating, is the ticket splitting issue. I feel like people, that's an underreported story. I know you guys, like I said, have been talking a lot about it. It feels like in this day and age, there would be nobody that would split a ticket, that you've picked your team, you picked your camp, but you guys, I think, found that that was not true and that that, I loved something you said, something about the ticket splitters and party switchers or the, the depolarizing force in politics. Tell me a little bit about that, what you saw and what you think it means going forward. One thing we see is our cousins and uncles and people standing on soccer fields with us or at school pickup or friends from high school who aren't into politics, who are not super polarized. They may be tuning out more than going hardcore left or right. Mm -hmm. And we feel that in our normal lives. It's obviously something state and local leaders feel as well, having to actually deal with real people and, and real problems. And so that democracy defense, defending democracy, we think the best way to do that is to practice democracy. And actually going out and practicing democracy, you see whether you're looking at the data while you're figuring out how to practice it or engaging with particular voters, there are a lot of people who do split their tickets. And yes, fewer people than before, but enough to make a difference in more elections than people think. And so part of placing bets slightly outside of the most competitive seats is a bet on volatility in the electorate. 
It is a bet on individual leaders being able to, as Lauren said, differentiate from their national party brands. And one way that we think about this is the national party brand can be something for Republicans and Democrats on opposing turf. It's like gravity. It's a little bit of a law of nature. And so polarization hawks like Ezra Klein and others who kind of force people into two extreme camps want that law to be ironclad and absolute. But people can escape gravity. Joe Manchin escaped gravity. He doesn't run a couple points ahead. He runs way ahead. Right? Charlie Baker in Massachusetts has escaped gravity. He doesn't run a couple points ahead. He runs way ahead. And so looking at the voters, taking a voter empathetic, voter focused look at, hey, who votes for Charlie Baker and Elizabeth Warren? That's one of the kind of first things we did even before we launched doing a deep dive of those types of voters. Who votes for Joe Manchin and Donald Trump? Who votes for Sherrod Brown and Donald Trump? And who answered the call, as you said, of Pete Buttigieg saying, I want future former Republicans? Who answers that call and steps up and, and wants to reach out? And then the data, it's very clear. In many states, more than 10% of the voters for the winning gubernatorial candidate voted opposite party for Senate. In Arizona, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, even though Democrats won both. In Georgia, it's Brian Kemp voters who deliver the majority. It's Republican gubernatorial voters more than 10% of whom voting Sherrod Brown in 2018, and many of them voting Tim Ryan this year. And so one just particular intervention we did in, in Ohio was to rail the sa- raise the salience of split ticket voting. So to actually take a voter-centric perspective on it and elevate voices of people who had been longtime Republicans, who were still voting Republican in some races, but in the competitive races, they were voting Democrat. And if you raise that concept up and a little bit just going directly to voters with mail pieces and other pieces to show them how many other people split their tickets despite the rhetoric around us. It's a permission structure as the kind of fancy political science term, social pressure permission structure. All right. Other people are doing it, even though when you turn on the TV, you don't hear it. Yeah. Well, and Twitter is not the world, right? <laughs> as, you know, not everybody you're seeing. What do you think the message is that appeal to those types of folks? I mean, obviously, it felt like for me, one of the main takeaways for from 2022 was, you know, it was actually a big sigh of relief that our country, there's a floor on extremism somewhere that people were like, I'm not going there. That's, that's too much. Right. So that was exciting, which, but as we talked a lot about at our, our November conference, I feel like that gave Democrats a moment, not a mandate because, you know, I'm not sure it was a huge vote for Democrats. It was definitely a vote against extremism. Right. So we have a lot of work to do to show that we are the party that is actually believes in governing, believes in solving problems, believes in, you know, making things work. But so when you think about kind of holding on to some of those voters after 2022 who did that, what do you think the messages or the tactics are that you guys are looking at going forward? It's a mixture of so many things, right? Because everybody's district is specific to the people there, right? I think that's something we sometimes don't think about. It's like, yeah, it's a federal office, but they're still representing South Carolina or Michigan or Pennsylvania or Ohio, right? One thing that we really emphasize with our candidates is authenticity, right? We want people to run as their true selves. We don't want them to try to fit the mold of a cookie cutter Democrat and believe that they have to change themselves. They have to change the way that they do their lives or whatever. Like, no, run as yourself, right? Run as the social worker that you are. Run as the retired teacher you are. Run as a retired law enforcement officer you are. Like you're, a lot of our candidates have been 
public servants before, and you know they want to serve again a diff- in a different capacity. And we want people to run as themselves, right? We want people to be able to provide genuineness because that's what voters want. They want real, they want authentic, right? And so when we are able to encourage them to do that, they usually get better return on their investment in that, right? And so we also focused on Republicans for groups, right? So we had Rachel Baker, uh, Representative Rachel Baker, she got elected last year is, you know, we had a Republicans for Rachel group where, you know, she was able to reach out to moderate Republicans in her district in Ohio and get people to come out and do lunch or dinner or whatever and talk about the issues. So we've done Republicans for groups for other candidates that we've had. And we just want to make it personable and comfortable and welcoming, right? That's the reason why we call ourselves the welcome party, welcome pack, but welcoming voters in, right? Because sometimes if people don't get an invitation, they're not going to consider, right? So it's, you know, extending that invitation first, welcoming people in, like I said, whether it's independents or moderate Republicans so that they feel like they could at least consider voting for a Democrat, whether it's for the first time, whether it's for the first time in 20 years, whatever, people need to be invited in into, into spaces to have conversations and let themselves realize that, you know, I might be more like this Democrat than I maybe wanted to admit, or maybe I thought. Yeah, I completely agree with you, obviously. And as a side note to this, I'm, it's one of the reasons I hope that we can get more new leaders who are many of whom are listening, I, you know, out there speaking for the Democratic Party, because I think that there are a lot of the types of people that you're talking about when people see them on TV, they go, oh, I, I didn't realize that, you know, Democrats cared about jobs or, you know, whatever it is, right, that most people are want, want our elected officials to be talking about. And I think that it's frustrating for me in the work I do, and I'm sure you see it too, of like, you know, having these brand issues that don't reflect most of the people that I work with around the country, right? So what do you think about this idea of some, you guys talked a lot about that there was the fact that so many seats were not contested. And I think it's something you just did a big report on to kind of do a deep dive on that. So the fact that we just said, oh, that's not a winnable seat, but you looked at some of these seats, particularly at the federal level and said, actually, no, if we had played in some of these seats, I think we could have won. And that, you know, we left some stuff on the table. How have you been thinking about that? And what are you trying to tell people, the party in particular, going forward? One big thing is we don't know which races will flip. And most other people don't either. But politics has become an entertainment industry and a hobby for many. And there is no incentive for people who are going to be wrong much of the time. But when they're right, it's a big one. And there's structural reasons for that. So we're not placing blame on any one entity. But when you aggregate the natural incentives of every group in the Democratic Party ecosystem, you get $5 billion or more and growing on every midterm election. And it's no one's job to do a lot of really important things. You aggregate all the incentives, you look at where all the money goes, and that money goes very late on TV to too few districts. And it's very natural why this would happen. If you go back 200 years, it's very rare that Congress is decided by a handful of seats, but it's now common. And it used to be very rare that $10 million would be spent on a house race. It's now very common. And there's no mechanism really to change the market. So there's tremendous inefficiency. And we looked at our launch after the Q3 financial filings in 2021 and identified districts that were, we called it the golden zone. Jared Golden level overperformance would have won. Hmm. And there were dozens of districts, 35, where there'd been no significant recent Democratic competition, where a Democrat with that level of overperformance would win, and where the Republican incumbent had taken steps to undermine democracy. And we narrowed those down to 
the you know, identified two dozen publicly and put this out to say these are places where you're conceding to democracy undermining Republicans. And it makes sense why they were conceded. They were roughly long shots. Maybe they were 10% likely to flip, 20% likely to flip. But in a world in which we're spending $5 billion, those are worth a couple million dollars each just to make a 5% bet or a 10% bet. But there's no structure really to do that. So that's kind of the nerdy, annoying, moneyballish aspect of it. I think there's a, a tangible aspect of it, which is you know, we were talking to a reporter about this and it is kind of ridiculous when you say, oh yeah, Michigan's fourth congressional district, Gretchen Whitmer will probably win that. She did. It's a very close race and the Democrat has less than $20,000. And there's a, a deep dive story in the Boston Globe on that one race. There's other districts that we invested in, in Colorado and in California, places that you know, didn't get any national investment because it makes sense for the group's national investment strategies. But where early and brand differentiated support can make a difference. A couple of those seats did flip. So Alaska is not one where we got involved, but where we identified early. Washington's third congressional district as well. And these are shots that, God bless Nate Silver, but these are places where Nate Silver said there was a 3% chance to win. Hmm. And if everybody believes that, everyone just reads Cook Political Report and looks at Nate Silver, so nobody puts money in, so no one local thinks there's a chance. That is a vicious cycle that undoes our democracy. The best way to capture that volatility and all those voters in the middle is to go out and have somebody you can talk to them and, and persuade them. But that's going to need to be invested in as a sector. And we just hope some of the demonstration points we've made in these articles combined with and reports combined with losing the House by five seats can wake people up to that. Yeah. It's interesting because I do think that there's also like the, and I, this might be controversial, I don't know, but you know, this feel good factor of like, I really want to give to Marjorie Taylor Greene's opponent, right? <laughs> Because it makes me feel good to do that. She's not going to lose that race, right? And so it's not just what you were talking about with the the fact that there's actually, you were saying that it made sense for national strategy for people to focus on other races, but there's also a lot of money going just from ordinary people to races that are just not winnable. And so how we get people to recognize that to your point, it would have been much better with, we were never going to get her out of there. So she's going to be in Congress. Let's not have her be in the majority, right? But to kind of, you have to overcome that kind of, just the education, I guess, right? Is that kind of what it comes down to when you're thinking about how to get this on people's radar screens? There is a dangerous market out there where if you can spend a dollar on Facebook and get small Democratic donors to give you a dollar and five cents, you'll keep doing it forever. And it's an unregulated marketplace. Even though campaign finance is highly regulated, any Democratic consultant can go cut a video anywhere and go run that Mark Zuckerberg laundering scheme effectively. Yeah. And so that is something that the market will have to be trained out of over time. But I think the Marjorie Taylor Greene example you pointed to should be a wake-up call, not just because that $10 million was clearly just going back into consultants' pockets. That was three times more than Lauren Boebert's opponent raised a race that we were involved in, and that went to a recount of less than 500. Nobody really thought was, I know it was on your guys' radar screen, but national media, kind of most people weren't talking about that as a winnable seat either, right? And Adam Frisch, the candidate, everyone should go check out his background. He was a registered independent up until days before the filing deadline, stepped forward, reached out, brought that pragmatic approach. And it's that market, it's, it's very frustrating, I think, for people who look at that. But we have to take that frustration and find a way to channel it and change the market and have people investing earlier and more aggressively in these places. Yeah. Let me take a step back and ask one other big picture question. Then I want to talk for a minute about you guys and how you got into this. But I think another thing that I hear a lot, again, we kind of run in similar circles in, in the center left political space. But you know, I get frustrated by the 
what seems to be somewhat conventional wisdom that there are no moderates left. I hear it from a Lyft driver the other day, you know, and, and I was like, that's just not true. Let me, you know, name them. Let me tell you what's happening. And of course, I think it's a function of the media and other things. But how do you guys address kind of this, assuming you also think it's a myth? How do you think about it and talk about it? It is a myth. Most of America is in the middle, right? And so it just happens to be that the people who are on the microphone most often represent the fringe of the extremes of both sides. They're not necessarily the ones in the middle, right? So if we had a squad for the center, then I'm sure that we would have more people talking about how moderates are doing the work and meeting people where they are, et cetera. But it just happens to be that those are those are click worthy and news quote unquote worthy things on the, the far right and far left. And people like to be entertained by their politics more than engaged civically sometimes. And that's just the nature of America, unfortunately. Adam Frisch actually has a, a phrase called angertainment that he likes to use when he talks about that kind of stuff, which I think is fun. But yeah, absolutely. We've been joined by you guys and just so many other great partners in this, this space. And even like I said, just in the States, you know, I live in Texas and I'm from South Carolina and most of the people that I do life with agree with me ideologically in the center, right? And so it's not like we're just making this stuff up and hoping that people agree with it. No, it's like, this is where people are. You can't just meet people where they are at their doors. You have to meet them where they are ideologically, which is something we talk about a lot. And when we do that more, people will realize like, oh, Democrats are pretty normal, right? You know, like, let's return to normalcy. Let's go back to team normal, which we say a lot, and get people to realize that It may just be their perception in the media that is skewing what's going on, but that in in reality, this is actually what it is. Like you said, Twitter is not real. (laughs) So if you remind people more often of the neutralness in a lot of our politics and still being passionate, but still being pragmatic, right? And so we can continue to talk about that more. I think people will get on the boat. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I said one question, but I, I lied. I have another one. It says on, on your website, and Liam, I think I heard you say it already here. You talk about empathy a lot. You talk about empathy for the voter. Say a couple more sentences about that, because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, there's an interesting emotion on the center left that would probably be more reflexively thought of as a far left, which is empathy, connection, understanding, things thought of as liberal values. It's something that I think at the New Deal conference was so heightened and intense in a community sense of we need to know ourselves well, what motivates us, who we are, and really build strong bonds with other people that are willing to reach out and willing to do difficult things. Because being in the center is the hardest place to be because you're catching it from all sides. So we think about it a lot in terms of the voter. If someone doesn't think the right way on an issue, or two issues, or three issues, or if they're not up to speed on the newest Wesleyan faculty lounge language, as Carville, I think, says, you got to just give them the give Think the best of them. You can educate them, but it's an Obama-style, New Deal-style way to go about life. While we focus on the voters, I think elevating the leaders and making the leaders easier is the ultimate solution to your prior question as well. Why do people not think of moderates when they think about the Democratic Party? And there's a lot of challenges facing us in changing that. People often say, well, moderates, you know, they're not as energetic. They're not as free. They're not going to all get together. And while that may be true in some sense, particularly on on Twitter, I think the bigger challenge is that there is a structural partnership between the far left and the right. And it benefits the right 
to paint Democrats as the left decile in the country. And it benefits the left to also be the face of the party and to be able to drive outsized presence and structure. And so one of the biggest challenges that the center left has is in emerging from a world in which both poles are aggressively set against the center left and coming together in community the way New Deal does, not just to project a public image, but to give people that sense that the far left and far right have built as well of, if you're a socialist, there's a book club down the street, like literally a book club, right? There is community. There is a place to go. If you're a fascist, same thing. Might be an online dark web forum or whatever, but there's a lot of community. And so those places where we have been able to come in common cause and feel you know, that common empathy for voters, but also to elevate that within leaders, does seem like the secret sauce to continue trying to tap into just in in more places and as aggressively empathetically as we can, I guess, aggressively and aggressive and empathy not thought of together often. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think there's a lot of merit to what you're saying. And I, I kind of feel like, I mean, right now is this interesting opportunity, right? I mean, I think that part of the the result of all of this contention and who can scream louder, but we're not going to focus on solving problems has also created this kind of distrust of government. Government is the problem. And we work obviously on the governing side, not the campaign side, like you guys do. But for me, thinking about in the years ahead, like we have to do a lot to show not only how we can elect these folks, but then also what they do once they get elected, right? And the, and the good that they do. We, we're spending a lot of our time right now looking at some of the amazing things that's happening with all the federal funding coming to states and localities and this historic opportunity to invest in people and communities and the difference that's making. Because it's like, we need to like flip the narrative, right? I mean, it, and because this is what we need as a society. This is what we need as a people is to be able to come together and solve problems. <laughs> and, you know, if we feel like that that can't happen or we never see any examples of it, I think that's a real problem for us going forward. So there's my soapbox for for today's podcast. But I want to make sure I I have time because one of the things I love on this podcast is getting to hear about people's journeys into public life. And of course, often we're talking to elected officials, but not always. Everybody who works behind the scenes on campaigns and in government, I think, have similar inspiring stories about what got them to this. So I guess I would ask each of you kind of what you would say your through line is, you know, a little bit from where you started and what you thought you might want to do when you started in your careers and how you ended up co-founding the Welcome Party. And maybe Lauren, I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. I love that question. So I went to the University of South Carolina. And when I was in college, I interned in a mayor's office in Columbia, interned for the state house. And it was kind of accidental. I had a mentor who was like, hey, I heard that this person needs an intern. You're interested? I was like, sure. I was studying public relations. So, you know, I wasn't necessarily looking to get into politics, but I was in student government. I was like, okay, it's pretty cool. And then, you know, went to work for Mayor Steve Benjamin in Columbia, who I know is a big, big fan as a founding partner (laughs) of New Deal, an OG pragmatic progressive. He's always been a great mentor to me. And so after working for Mayor Benjamin, went to where I was a state director in South Carolina for Beto when he ran for president. And then I got connected to Liam. And so just been in the space and loving it, uh, working on campaigns over the years and encouraging candidates to really have a compelling message that reaches voters in a way that is natural to them, right? And so um, trying to find all the different ways that we can to, like you said, you know, make it so that people know what's going on is important, whether it's reaching people in a way that is natural to them with social media or in-person town halls or whatever, or whether it's the message that needs to be crafted in a way that helps people understand better. 
I love that. Well, thank you for what you're doing, Lauren. Liam, what about you? You kind of you had a more cir- circuitous is that the word route to uh, politics? Actually, right? I was not in college Democrats. I was a Democrat, but was not more focused on sports than politics and and traditional service and nonprofit work. And so I did AmeriCorps right out of college, and then worked for several years at New Profit, which is a venture philanthropy fund in that broader national service movement that straddled between effective philanthropy and and public policy and the model there was to demonstrate a new way of philanthropy, saying the philanthropic market is broken. There are ways to demonstrate more effective ways of growing high-impact organizations. And segued from there into seeing just the impact that policy can have, moved into education advocacy, but kept a lot of that ecosystem-level perspective on how nonprofit markets or political markets can be very, very inefficient. and through the education advocacy work I was doing at the state level, realized that there were you know, many great New Deal leaders in Massachusetts where I was, but the state level muscle on that more pragmatic end of the party had not been built up over time and focused on the state permanently. And through that work, basically stumbled upon the welcome party, welcome pack concept with Lauren and, and our other partners and, and advisors. And the way that we were welcomed into that work of saying, yes, we can add to what's happening here. We can take on this niche made us feel very entrepreneurial and willing to take a couple risks and we we're off. Yeah, I love it. What's your message to anybody who just kind of wants to help or wants to get involved? How do people join with you literally or figuratively in terms of trying to both elect these pragmatic folks, identify them, and then and also just engage with their neighbors and being part of this dialogue about things can work, let's save democracy, all of those things that we've been talking about. We try to step back and reflect each week on what we're learning through the direct work that we're doing, but also reading partners like New Deal and, and others to see what else is out there in this pragmatic path to protecting our democracy and, and winning. The honest answer, people should make their voice heard within the party. And it's very hard to speak up often, especially for young people. We had fellows originally going out and talking to independents and being explicitly pragmatic and welcoming in people who had voted for Donald Trump, because those are the people that might vote for Joe Biden or whoever the nominee was, and demonstrating that empathy, modeling that empathy. There are so many ways to do that at the local level, state level, or with any small dollars or large dollars that you're supporting. One of the biggest things is to be part of that we, to join a group that is explicitly reaching out and bringing people in. And we need more of them. Well, thanks, guys. I guess I'm going to say that. It's so fun to talk to you. I think we could do a whole other conversation on even just like, you know, the Trump voters and what we do with them, the people who want to come back, all that stuff. But there's so much to talk about. But this has been such a great conversation. And I'm grateful for all the work you're doing and the impact you're making. And I just I'm really appreciative of you coming on the show to talk about it and share a little bit with people. So it's good to see you both. Thank you. Great seeing you, too. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.